the 1980s. The new Hollywood sphere continues to expand, and as the Spielbergian influence on the multiplex grows, the era of the movie geek director is in full swing. Coming off a long summer fueled by the nostalgia machine of Stranger Things, it can be easy to forget that the 80s themselves were chock full of films looking back fondly on decades past, from Raiders of the Lost Ark to Back to the Future. Directors and writers, like all of us, are the product of the stories of our youth. That means reverence, admiration, and sometimes dutiful imitation. But loving something can also mean being able to laugh at it. And parody, after all, is a sign you really made it. That's how Kurt Cobain felt after Weird Al found his way to Smells Like Teen Spirit, after all. Noir arrives in the 1980s well past its heyday, but ingrained in the minds of every young maverick director on the scene. And, with the cinematic zaniness reaching a boiling point in the wake of Mel Brooks and the Zucker Brothers, it's no surprise that noir would factor in sooner than later. There's nothing lazy about our two films tonight. We're looking at two comic love letters to noir, wildly different approaches and ambitions, and it's not hard to look at movies so committed to mining laughs from a dusty old genre and not see the deeply rooted appreciation running through them. Parody and pastiche, in their most earnest forms, can retroactively enrich an entire genre. Proof of that assertion, look no further than the movie geeks of today, who found, through parody, the gateway to a host of cinematic treasures. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. Except tonight, it's not two friends, but three. We're trying something new here on Celluloid Dirt, and are excited to welcome back, uh, excited to welcome our first guest host, Brandon Shockney. Hey guys, well, thanks for having me. Glad to have you, Brandon. Uh, for those who may not have listened before, I'm Tristan Johnson. And I'm Fred Pelzer, and as you can tell from the intro, tonight we are looking at the lighter side of noir as we examine a pair of loving send-ups from the 1980s, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is uh, where Brandon comes in. Yes, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, one of my favorites of all time. Maybe I, I say it's on the, on my letterbox account, my number one favorite movie wow. of all time. As wow. we know, Letterboxd is uh, the ultimate indication of, of a person's soul. So I think, uh, yeah. yeah. You have to right. pick four. How are you, You're supposed to pick four movies to put. How are you How are you supposed to narrow down four to put on your profile? It's so hard. I, I, I hacked my Letterboxd account. I just put Who Framed Roger Rabbit five times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about that and uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which was a completely new experience for me. So I'm coming at it from the two different spectrums where one movie I've seen like at least 20 times and the other movie, this was my first experience with it. Great. Well, we always, we, we've been uh, toggling a lot for us too. It's kind of sometimes, sometimes it's brand new 
Um, sometimes we, we are well familiar with something. So we've been going back and forth a bit too and getting both sides of that. And, uh, and, and it's, it's been a blast. Now we get to share it with someone else. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're so pumped to have you. Oh, thank you. And just a, you know, a little background. Brandon, I met through the improv scene here in Chicago, uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, 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 the pain. Um, but he's, uh, yeah, I know it's, it's, uh, yeah, kicking the pants there, but, um, but yeah, Brandon is just like one of the funniest, most talented performers I know. He's wow. performed on main stages all across Chicago. He's taught, he's led teams. Um, and while he may no longer be based in Chicago, uh, he's, he was uh, an obvious perfect match for talking about a couple of, uh, funny odes to, to the genre. Yes, uh, and we all we all got to make a web series together. Some That's also true. Back to... Yeah, <laughs> that was oh, eight man. years ago. Uh, oh, oh my no. goodness! It was, was it? These timestamps, Fred. You got us. They're killing me. They're killing me. Well, um, this should be an especially fun week to introduce a third to our discussion. So we might as well get down to it. Uh, our first film up this evening. It doesn't just mine familiar noir tropes for laugh. It extracts entire classic scenes. For that very purpose, uh, we are talking, of course, about Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Here's the trailer. Steve Martin, am Rigby Reardon in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Will $200 be enough in advance, Mr. Reardon? $200, I'd shoot my grandmother. No criminal is too tough for him. <laughs> no pain is too great. <laughs> Where'd you learn that? The camp. Released in 1982 and directed by Carl Reiner, uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid stars Steve Martin, Rachel Ward, and Carl Reiner himself. Um, oh, and also Ingrid Bergman, Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, Brian Donlevy, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Burt Lancaster, Harry Grant, Ava Gardner, Kirk Douglas, Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake, Charles Lawton, Fred McMurray, Ray Milland, Edmund O'Brien, Barbara Stanwyck, Lana Turner, and Vincent Price. Uh, so uh, clearly, we are we're, we're dealing with a film with uh, 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 something extra up its sleeve. Um, this the plot is gleefully obtuse. Martin is playing a private detective named Rigby Reardon, who is investigating the death of a scientist and cheesemaker named John Forrest at the behest of his daughter Juliet. Martin follows lead after lead through the rogues gallery of Noir before ending up on an island off the coast of Peru where her father is alive and pulled into a cheese bomb conspiracy with the Nazis and uh, ends with the, um, the untimely destruction of Terre Haute, Indiana. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a, a wacky movie and it is of course built around this central premise of pulling in clips, harvesting clips from all manner of classic noir um, and and reappropriating them um, throughout, uh, and and truly, this is less a this is less a movie about its its actual plot than it is a means to take Steve Martin on a journey through classic noir. Uh, that so, uh, gosh, uh, Brandon, you've already said this is your your first time seeing this. I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious how that has all played for you. And also, yeah. I mean your relationship to Steve Martin would probably be another good yeah. 
thing to touch in about. And, you know, presumably you've seen him in, in something else besides this. You may have, may yeah. have caught him somewhere. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Although, although I will say, I also, I, I hadn't seen this, and I also, this may be sacrilege to say, I haven't seen The Jerk, which is their first it is. combo together, right? I, I still haven't seen The Jerk. So that maybe they got to take my comedy card away from me for saying that. But, um, but no, uh, you know, of course, uh, I, I've been a big fan of Steve Martin for a while. I mean, most recently, I just binged uh, Only Murders in the Building, uh, both seasons of it. And I oh, really, yeah. what, what, like, what a fun um, kind of, it, it's weird to say comeback, but, you, you know, it, it is like a... Late career. That, late. Yeah, late, late career. We're back in the, like, comedy stylings on, on TV between him and Martin Short. It's just, it was really nice to just have that again um that that show feels really special but um but yeah so i i was very curious going into this i also want to know based off you guys i mean you two are the experts like did you recognize every time someone showed up that's like clearly it's like archival footage that they're using or whatever were you able to like immediately kind of pinpoint each person i caught about like half of i was like oh yeah i've been surprised of course but uh some of those were going over my head I was like, clearly this is someone. I just don't know. Well, the first time I watched this, when I was a child, uh, every one of them except Bogart went over my head. Um, <laughs> sure. I might have caught Vincent Price then, but but yeah. but I I probably was ten years old when I watched this for the first time, and mm. and I um, I, I did the, the gimmick was entirely lost on me. Um, minus minus Bogart, I'd seen Maltese Falcon at the point I saw this, and nothing else. Um, so, uh, I, it, it, and I have not watched it since. Um, so this time, it was nice going back and and getting to um, see clips that are, I would say, are. I, I did not recognize all of them, but the vast majority, yes, and some of mm-hmm. them, uh, I just uh, for uh, for our covering of. Um, of the music boxes, Noir City. I just watched Sorry Wrong Number. So Barbara Stanwyck showing up in that, on, on bedridden on the phone. That was a that was a nice one that I just got to see and and pick up on. Uh, yeah. Fred, what about you? Uh, yeah, it's sort of in a similar boat to you. I watched this in the '90s at some point. My dad was was definitely a fan, and and um, and yeah, at the time, a lot of it definitely went over my head, uh, but. I watched it again a few years ago and uh, more of it clicked. And then even just watching again this time, like you said, having like really thrown ourselves in the deep end of, of classic noir, even more of the, like the actors and the, the films I was able to place. I'm still not definitely close to hundred percent on that, but, um, but, but yeah, no, it's a fun and you know, it's, it is also the more I watch it, the more I'm impressed by the technical achievement, um, which is maybe not quite as uh, is overshadowed by uh, uh, Roger Rabbit, but it is still pretty right. impressive the degree to which they're able to sort of seamlessly uh, put Steve Martin into these different scenarios and, and like both on a writing and on an execution level. Yeah, it's uh, like obviously everything's being reverse engineered to to move him um according to what the the scene is allowing and to uh and, and they're trying to pick scenes that they can uh, they can uh play with enough uh, there's a, that there's enough vague um 
scripting in there that, that they can adapt it easy enough. Uh, in some cases, it just seems fun watching him interact with these with these classic stars. In other cases, like I I I think the fun, the one that landed funniest for me was the double indemnity um, and mm-hmm. uh, and like that one seemed so because it's 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 certainly on the iconic end of of even among the the classic scenes we have here. That one's one of the most and. And it seems like they were really like they wanted to set up that punchline of him being Barbara Stanwyck. Right. Right. That's the thing is like you, you see him putting stuff on it and you cut to the grocery store and you're like, of course, it's that outfit. It's that hairdo. Yeah. Like that's that's what's happening right here. Right. I think my favorite of the of the bits was the the really short one where he goes up to that. You, you'll have to remind me of the the. Uh, the actors but she, he goes up to that one the the blonde and is like she's never said no to me or whatever that joke is and then she immediately says it's like added it to her vocabulary or whatever i thought that was just <laughs> such a great like little bit um because that middle chunk that middle chunk really is like just set up after set up after set up after set up it's like we're not doing any plot stuff we're not pushing right. anything forward it's just like um which is which is where i found because I, I i think from what I'm gathering from both of you, I mean, generally, I, I feel like we're all pretty favorable on the movie, right? But, like, I think around that part is where I started to lose a little steam in it, um, around the middle. And then the back end, I was I was kind of ready for the the premise or the promise of the movie to kind of kind of uh, wrap up. Yeah, I mean, it's really, yeah. it's got the one card to play, right? Which is, yeah. I mean, there's two cards, right? There's what new scene from films past is Steve Martin going to pop up in? And then also like mm-hmm. Steve Martin style jokes, right? Where it's like the running gag of right. she sucks the bullet out of his wound um, <laughs> yeah. or, yeah. or what have you. Um, and I don't know that those like two halves are perfectly married together, or, like mm-hmm. coherent. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like, it definitely gets into a rhythm where you're like, okay, this is kind of like fun, but it's not building to anything because each scene has to like reset the story essentially and these characters are never going to come back again because they're not gonna be able to like you know only in a few instances are they able to like string together two different movies as though it's the same character and yeah right and so it's like the the pleasures the pleasures of it going in are are kind of are brief and immediate they're not anything that you're you're not you're not trying to attach yourself to these characters because you know they're going to be gone um and 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 the plot will move on entirely from them. Um, but it does kind of work in that, the, the big sleep-esque, um, convoluted noir where you just are burning through plot points. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is a good fit for that, for, for what for it sure. is trying to send up. No, I had the same thought. It was, um, that the, the same thing we've seen so many times in the season that these, these plots are just a thin excuse to string along a series of interesting incidents. But here, the interesting incidents are Steve Martin popping up in an old movie, not like things that are, you know, coherent to a story and a point of view. That there is a lot of fun to watching him. Um, I mean, Bogart, the Bogart exchange, especially handing Bogart a clip on tie, just kind of <laughs> belittling, belittling him, <laughs> making Marlowe seem like the like he's just he's there to. Uh, to carry out the more menial work for right, I mean, that's one of my favorite. That, that's that's a fun bit. It's yeah, great. Yeah, one of my favorite jokes from this watch was the like all the different needlepoint 
sayings that Marlowe had left him in different, like, you know, uh, never fall in love with a client and guns don't kill <laughs> detectives. Love does in his, <laughs> inside his vanity mirror. Uh, right. That was that was a, that was fun. I and you know just the the like going over some of the the gags and the jokes. I mean the the cleaning woman bit did make me laugh every time. Every time he like shakes right, and it just like cuts to his like it's, face being like ah. That's such a Steve Martin bit. It's so dumb, and yet, and so yet, dumb. it is kind of endearing. Yeah, <laughs> that's the other thing. I was like, you're laughing, and it, you know, despite yourself, you're like, oh man, well, still funny. <laughs> I wanted more Carl Reiner. I will say mm. that I, th- I think he, I think the the movie could have stood to have a, his presence a little more um, somewhere in the middle there. Yeah, it needed to check in with him again. I I think that uh, mm-hmm. I mean he. He gets just because everyone else is showing up for one scene and then getting dropped. You're you're watching and you're not even necessarily thinking he's going to to come back in unless you know unless you are going in knowing that that is Carl Reiner and he is probably going to show up again because he uh, he directed it. But but uh, yeah, I think from the for for where it goes at the end, it could use a little more of him. Um, so. Um, so this, this is definitely, I mean, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna compare and contrast a little bit when we, when we wrap things up. Uh, but, but no surprise that this, this just takes a totally different approach to comedy than, than Who Framed Roger Rabbit does. Um, this is so much more in the, the straight up parody realm. Um, and, um, and really to this point, I, as I was looking in, uh, reading up on, on other noir parodies, there's just not a ton. There, there certainly aren't a ton that are that rise uh, up to a, a level of of acclaim that that you see from other genres. There's no Mel Brooks noir that that you know stands like Blazing Saddles or, or something. Um, so uh, so that there I saw that there was a, a Bob Hope. Uh, vehicle, my favorite brunette from the the forty set uh, from nineteen forty seven, which had both Peter Laurie and Lon Chaney Jr. for some some heavies in there, uh, but uh, but not a ton. And then there's the Cheap Detective uh, from nineteen seventy eight, which um, which has got Peter Falk as the as the main character, and that one actually pulls a few cast members over from uh, from Murder by Death, which is not strictly a a noir parody, but it's just kind of a detective fiction parody in general. Um, that one was, I think, seventy-five or seventy-six, um, and and one I watched early on and definitely was very formative. So I don't know, Mar- um, Martin and and Reiner could kind of set the stage here with some do something new that hadn't really been done before, and I appreciate the approach that they took and. Uh, clearly it was enough that I saw it early on. Um, so it was at least on my radar from uh, a younger age. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. also, um, some Looney Tunes shorts that are kind of playing with noir tropes from, and like Mary Melodies and that kind of stuff. But, but definitely yeah, in terms of like big famous movies, there's, there's just not that much. It's so interesting too. I, I think that like looking at this movie and kind of the legacy of it, right? Like I feel, I feel like you never, until you really brought it up to me, I was not familiar with this movie. And even in like 
Steve Martin's filmography and not being kind of like one of the bigger ones, I feel like, when it comes to him. So why, why do you think that is? Why do you think this hasn't had like a kind of a lasting presence, I feel like, in in pop culture? It's not like a, a comedy classic or, or, or even a Steve Martin classic, I feel like, really, you know? Um, it's maybe a little more niche. Well, I think... I think we kind of hit on it. I mean, this is yeah. th- this is a, a a one gimmick film, right? And right, at, at, and it and it's enjoyable. Uh, and I certainly laughed it hard in parts, but but I don't know if it I don't know if it fully transcends that that singular gimmick mm-hmm. that's driving it. It doesn't quite for me. I still like it, but I, I would I I wouldn't put it among a classic status for for yeah, America. like the the needs of the. Again, I think it's because like every scene kind of resets the story, right? It has to be like, okay, mm-hmm. we're introducing a whole new context, a whole new character. So like so much of the movie is just Steve Martin kind of explaining why he's going to someplace new and who this person is, that there's just not a lot of room for him to do bits, right? And to like and then also when he's up against this his new scene partner, like they can usually find a funny angle on that dialogue, but it's still not, you know, he, he feels a lot more contained in those scenes than he is when um, it's, it's just him and uh, 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 Rachel Ward and like the two of them like that, those, those scenes with just the two of them feel much more like that classic Steve Martin comedy where he's able to just kind of mm-hmm. do his thing. Uh, Cause he actually has an actual scene partner to play off of and write to. I'm pretty sure I laughed the hardest when he just kept pouring the damn coffee into yes. the pot. <laughs> you just expect and it to end eggs. and yeah. it just never ends. <laughs> and I, 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 I don't know why, but I, but that, that's what makes Steve Martin so great at what he does. And honestly, this film gets a lot of mileage out of the fact that, that Martin has this rare presence that he's just so darn charismatic and watchable that um that you know put him in in any context you want and he's just someone that is that is going to make the most of his time on camera it's also very strange to see him i mean not that this is the only instance of this but with his dyed hair um it's always yeah, I, like... had, I had that same thought of like oh wow yeah it, it does kind of really solidify that character for him you know i guess and where i that it goes that extra mile of like oh yeah i see the detective now because it's got the yeah the different hair yeah and i think it's also interesting because it's like i think when he's got his natural hair color it lets him play it just makes him read more as a clown right whereas when he's got the brown hair he i think to me at least he just sort of reads more like classically hollywood hair. like it emphasizes that he right. is like a good-looking guy and so it lets him blend into the part more and then also then kind of finds the absurdity too, when he does just do a Steve Martin thing, but he doesn't look like as, as out of as strange, not strange, but you know, he doesn't have that pop of color of hair color that, that he normally does. And I will say, I I mean, as, as much of the jokes as I really enjoyed, there were a few kind of clunkers, right. That, Oh yeah. um, I mean, it was tough um, that it opened with, just uh, like sexual assault, like yeah, like oh yeah, this is nine years old. Um, I did not remember that from when I was a child watching watching this, but oh boy, uh, that does not age well. Yeah, and they like they like triple down on it too, and you're like, oh man, 
Uh, yep, they the, they bring it right back at the end uh, as as if yeah, that it, yeah, yeah. turnaround is it, it justifies oh uh, it's yeah it's not good. Um, let's see what I have. I had a few other notes I I jotted down from it. I thought were were interesting. So um, so Martin and, and Reiner had done the jerk together, which is a really a, a really fun movie. Um, I haven't seen that in years, but I, I thought it was pretty great. Uh, between those, um, Steve Martin starred in the American adaptation of Dennis Potter's Pennies from Heaven. Uh, Dennis Potter would go on a little later in the 80s to craft another great noir homage to Singing Detective with Michael Gambon, which we won't be covering in, in, on this podcast or in this uh, series as it's a, a mini series, but uh, it is pretty wonderful. Um, there were uh, 19 different classic noir films in total that were that were all incorporated into uh, into the film. Um, and Martin uh, apparently did not um, did not really spend much time watching any noir in preparation for this. He did not want to. He didn't want to sink into doing an imitation of Bogart or another classic detective. He he wanted to come in fresh. I don't know that Martin is. I don't know that that's Martin's game anyway. I think he would always be himself um, and bring his own weirdo energy to it. But uh, but he he apparently uh, was actively seeking to avoid that. And also, this was the last film uh, from the great costume designer Edith Head, uh, mm-hmm. and she created over twenty suits for Martin. Wow! And she must have worked at least on, on some of the films that were then being integrated to. Probably, I'm sure she did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and a fair portion of the people that are are um, incorporated into this were still alive at the time that this was was released. Of oh, course. Sure. So I'm, I'm curious how many of them got to see themselves be worked in and, and what they thought hopefully got a kick out of it but yeah you know again i just feel like there's not there's not a lot of meat to it besides the gimmick right and like right. the the martin stuff is fun but even that generally isn't like commenting but the the voiceover is playing with the noir tropes a bit but for the most part it's not really even like his his gags are just his gags they're not mm-hmm. that much like riffing on Again, probably because he was not immersing himself in it in, in the writing, so it really was just more of like a Steve Martin character dropped in here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll we'll compare that, and contrast our detectives a bit uh, yeah. as we as we wrap up. Right, right, yeah. Because I think like you know, I think that's the that's the main kind of crux or issue with parody a lot of times, right? Is that there's just not a lot you can really dive deeper into, you know, beyond. Uh, oh, look, they're making fun of this thing, right? Like, uh, there's there's never going to be, like, really in-depth arcs and stuff like that when it comes to to parodies. So um, while while I always have an appreciation, I always enjoy my time with a, with a parody, it's never going to be, like, my top tier when it comes to a comedic approach. Right. I'm, I'm I'm with you on that, and I think uh, uh, as I as I alluded to in the, the, the intro, but to me, like, these kind of the these kind of movies are the the big virtue of them is it gets me to want to seek out these other these other movies it's in conversation with um mm-hmm. it's lampooning and it makes and it does it does deepen my appreciation for those those movies that are put up on a pedestal and and seen as something to laugh at now we have a totally different uh take 
uh, a very different type of homage here in our next film, um, one that I know that we all are quite fond of and uh, which I'm assuming most of our listeners have gotten to see. We're going to jump right to it. It is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down-and-out private detective stay named Eddie Valiant. Ooga booga! Every moment they were together ah! was a new adventure in trouble. Hide me, Eddie! <laughs> Released in 1988 and directed by Robert Zemeckis, Who Framed Roger Rabbit stars Bob Hoskins and Christopher Lloyd with the vocal talents of Charles Fleischer and Kathleen Turner as Jessica Rabbit. Uh, so we've got private detective Eddie Valiant hired by studio head R.K. Maroon to get the dirt on why his star, Roger Rabbit, may be underperforming. This leads Valiant to find that Roger's girl, Jessica Rabbit, has been playing patty cake with Toontown mogul Marvin Acme. Roger is confronted with the facts, but when Acme turns up dead the next morning, he suddenly becomes suspect number one, pulling Valiant straight into another case. Acme's will has gone missing, a will that supposedly turns over control of Toontown to the tunes. Lurking in the shadows is the terrifying Judge Doom and his weasels working to tip the balance of Toontown for their own gain. This is just an outright classic, isn't it? I'm sure we all saw this at first as a child, but uh, have revisited it a handful of times since. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, this was like my main movie as a kid. Like I watched this all the time. um, And, you know, I watched it it's so funny then to like the reason I watched it so much then is just because I liked cartoons so much. Like I loved Looney Tunes and I loved, you know, um, and I thought the, there was nothing cooler than the blend of live action and animation. I just thought that, like that, that effect worked on me so well as a kid. And then it just kind of, it's crazy how it continued to stick with me. And I just, I began to like appreciate it in like just different ways, but it never lessened. Like my love for it stayed, but I just, it was like layers on top of layers of like, well, now I like it so much because of this and like the characters and the, the craftsmanship and like everything. Um, so it's, it's been a really great one to kind of grow up with, I feel like. Yeah, I, gosh, I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you when I first saw it, but I have obviously saw it a few times th- throughout childhood. I probably last saw it. 10, 12 years ago or so. So it's been a little while, but it, but it, it, it's still so fresh in my mind. And, and I'm rewatching it. I, I know it's, I think it's close to two hours, but it is such a breezy mm-hmm. film. It moves so well. Um, and it's, and it's a really brilliant marriage of two genres as, as good of one as I could, I could ask from anywhere as, that I can think of from anywhere. Just, they make so much sense together. Yeah, I think it because it, it treats them both seriously, right? And I grew up both of you like loved it as a kid, love it now, love it in different ways. But um, and I would say, in terms of Zemeckis, Back to the Future is probably like my number one. But this is also mm-hmm. really good. Um, it was just like Zemeckis, Zemeckis had, had some magic powers. behind yeah. him in the eighties. Uh, and he was, I mean, he was doing it. Yeah, yeah. Back to the Future is the other one I something. watch. I watch Back to the Future like all the time too. Mm-hmm. Like. He was unknowingly my favorite director, you know, as a kid. I had no idea, but yeah, it's my favorite. Uh, Uh, Yeah, and like I said, now, like now I just appreciate it because it is, it does the noir 
so well, right? And it is mm-hmm. like it takes all that stuff super seriously, except when it needs to do the joke, and then it just lands the joke perfectly. Yeah, I think that's what that that's what really sets it apart. That this isn't this isn't laughing at noir. This is um this is this has got through the cartoon a totally different mechanism with, within which to pull jokes in. So you can have a a zany, funny film that is also deeply um, deeply in love with the noir tropes and and has mm-hmm. the utmost respect for them and isn't cracking jokes at their expense. That it is it it is it is a film that takes its premise, as you said, really seriously, except when it's got a, a bit to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating because uh, you know you're, and I've I've heard this too that the the book apparently that it's based off of is very different. It's also an yeah. ongoing series. Um, the the new book just came mm. out like a year or two ago. The the really? writer is, is still writing them. So uh, wild, and, uh, and it's it's got substantial deviation. Um, it was uh instead of instead of it being a full toon town um in the same way, it's more it's more comic instead of it being animation, it's more comic strip oriented is what i i gathered right from. there's yeah because there's a lot about like speech bubbles right like speech bubbles get left behind become evidence and uh um, oh, fun so yeah play with uh, it just sort of a different way but and, and um, like like rogers uh murdered in the book right yeah like, yeah. yeah yeah he's yeah. got a doppelganger um Ro- roger roger dies there's a genie um it it's i i, I did not read it but um but there's some substantial deviations and apparently there's only two lines that carried over um to the film uh one of which being the uh the classic i'm not bad i'm just drawn that way i mean it's a great line like yeah you gotta gotta keep that line yeah and it's one of those things too where you know it it is it is more cemented uh, or focused on animation obviously but it's just crazy to think how the stars aligned to make this happen you know like the fact that you're seeing disney you're seeing warner brothers characters you're seeing all these things kind of coexist in one big uh sandbox is kind of nuts like can you imagine them trying to work that out today like it just feels like it would never happen so well, I mean, it's, it's yeah so- look at look at uh Roger Rabbit, not Roger, the uh, Rescue Rangers, Rescue Rangers um, shit, movie, yeah. like yeah. that is Disney. I think they made a deal with MGM, and there's a couple of MGM characters, but there's no Warner Brothers characters in that movie because mm-hmm. no way in hell. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it just feels like uh, like the alchemy was right, and and it is something singular and magical, and uh, cannot cannot discount Bob Hoskins uh from from that equation because i don't know what happened to pull him in into this role i don't he before this he well he was in um in in mona lisa uh that's it's a great movie it's a great performance but like how i don't know how he got he got from there to here and Mm. it's it's just such a good role because he fits that classic detective mold so well has there ever been a cooler character than Eddie Valiant? Even the name is just so perfect. Um, yeah, I, I love him. I, I think he, like we've mentioned already before, he, I mean, he's playing this completely straight and completely dedicated. And 
the fact that you think like half of his scenes are to nothing are to Roger Rabbit, right? And how the chemistry between them feels so palpable and real. And it's just like the power of an incredible actor, you know? And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm always astonished by him. I mean, uh, he was my favorite movie star also as a kid. Uh-huh. I had no idea because he was, he was Eddie Valiant. He was Mario Mario from the Super Mario <laughs> Brothers. Um, he, he was Mr. Smee in, uh, in, in Hook. Smee and Hook. Yes, <laughs> I like loved him. I loved him. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I have Super Mario Brothers, the movie on the DVD because, you know, I need my Bob Hoskins fist to uh, fix everything. There, there's... <laughs> I, I mean that movie's a that movie's a mess, but there are some pleasures in it, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, no, not to go too off track. But no, yeah, no that's, he, we do that all the time here. <laughs> uh, no, he's just um, and, and you know the, the scene that always gets me and always makes me uh, really solidifies it for me is when he is when he is developing those photos, right. And they actually take the time to have him look through, look through the photos of like the beach of, and like with his, with his dead brother and all that stuff. And there's just this really like shift in his, in his attitude with that. And it's just like, so you feel for him so much in that moment. And it's just like, you know, I, it, that that to me is like a moment in the movie that solidifies like how seriously they're taking this stuff and not compromising for the jokes is because they have scenes like that where we're really investing in his character. Um, and I, yeah, man, it just all it all works for me so well. It's just, just like when we talked about when we talked about Chinatown and you're you're recreating this this classic era noir and you're taking all of these themes that are that are familiar at this point that are recurring and you're, and you're doing them bigger and better and you're, and you're just executing it so perfectly. And that, and that uh, just looking at Hoskins arc over the course of this, it is, it's everything you want out of, out of your classic noir detective. He's, he's got a tragic past. He's got a drinking problem. He's um, he, he's got demons and, uh, and, and he, is down on his luck and you are rooting for the guy to overcome it. And you see where you, you see everything that's weighing this poor guy down. Um, uh, it just makes for, it makes for such a great formula for, for noir detective and, and Hoskins nails it. And they also, on, on top of like the, all the stuff that you would typically see in a detective, they also take advantage of this world, right. By saying like, he's got this unique thing where he was like a, he was like a, him and his brother were like circus performers. Right. And, and they like loved Toontown. They thought it was a gas to like go and like hang out with the tunes. And it's just like, and that comes, they bring that back in that amazing scene where he's like making the weasels laugh, right. By doing his routines and stuff. And they don't hit on the circus stuff like really hard. But then when that happens, it's like, Oh man, it, it pays off so well. So I, I love that they're taking stuff that maybe you wouldn't usually see in the hard boiled detective as well and incorporating that in this like cartoon, toontown, um, wackiness vibes. Um, you know, he's doing the gags that you would see like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck do in a Loon to. It's like the end, like stuff falling on his head and whatnot. It's just, I, I love it. It, it. He's he's so good at that. He's just as good as at that stuff as he is at the detective stuff. Um, which not every actor can do that, 
No, no, yeah. Coming back to it this time, something that really is stuck for me is is how much the plot like works. Like if you took out all mm-hmm. the tune stuff and you were just like, this is about a guy who gets pulled into a murder that turns out to be a bit of like corporate cover up because it's about land deals. I mean, that is like classic LA detective, especially post Chinatown. And, and it's not that far from reality, right? Like there used to be a great electric tram system in the city that was then destroyed to make a profit with the highways and car sales. Like it just gets putting in the, the, the tunes instead of like, you know, the, the parts of the city where the people of color were living that were bulldozed down to make way for the highway. Highway installation is nefarious business and, mm-hmm. uh, and it ruins communities and it's, yeah, it's not a, as, as much as it sounds um, maniacal and, and comical coming from Christopher Lloyd, it is um, like, like that, that shit happens. And right. it, I mean, it's uh, uh, no sudden moves is is yeah. about this too um, that we just covered earlier much earlier this year also yeah christopher lloyd great villain terrified me as a child like, uh-huh apparently horrifying. tim curry auditioned and he was turned down because he was too terrifying uh, i believe it <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. but but yeah ah christopher lloyd oh so so great it, here it, it's fun to see him more buttoned up right take something like he does with at least for the three quarters of the movie right but uh, to to use Doc Brown is like the big contrast to this is like such a fun to see him in like the all black and really serious and, you know, scary as opposed to um, the, the all over the map physically uh, Doc Brown. It's just, it's just fun to see that, that versatility there too. Um, Yeah. He's awesome in this. Uh, The, I mean, we know the scene that haunts all of our nightmares (laughs) when he dips the shoe, right? Like, it's so upsetting. I mean, the shoe also, but also like when the eyes pop, when his yeah, eyes pop that, out, that, the, the reveal at the end is pretty. Yeah. Your brother, Eddie. I talk just like this. Yeah. I that, I feel that like that, that is a scene that, that is seared into my mind as a child. And yeah. just, um, he, he is the stuff of childhood nightmares right there. Mm-hmm. And, and then his, and his hand turns into a giant axe and you're like, oh God. Right. Yeah. Like you, you never like, the idea of a cartoon murderer is is wild, right? Like that that is so scary because they don't have to play by any rules, but you know they could. Right. Humans do. I, Everybody play Warner world. Brothers uh, Super Mario Super Mario uh, Super. Uh, and I just ruined my own joke, but whatever that Warner Brothers Mar- mixed fighting game is with all the different characters, where like Bugs Bunny is fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Multiverses, oh. yeah. Multiverses, yeah. Yeah. You know. um, I, I, the, the other thing too, I wanted to ask you: Do you think, ask you both? Do you think Zemeckis is more interested in? I mean, I guess it could be both, but do you think he's more interested in film noir or more interested in old Hollywood? Because it, it feels like the movie is really making a statement about hollywood and you know there's there's some analog for like what the tunes represent right in terms of like actors and whatnot and um, the transition from silent to talkies and yeah yeah do you think he's he's putting his chips more in that or i think he's got he's got the noir beats so down that Mm -hmm. that i i mean i i can't uh i I think he's i think both is is the the cop-out answer but but i 
he he just is so confident in in the noir beats that he's hitting through here that I guess that that's where I would lean. I, he, he, I don't know. I could so see well. arguing with these the the old Hollywood of it all too is just so like yeah because he is so clearly in love with like the behind the scenes of like being on the lot and going to the cafeteria and you've got you know except instead of having like actors in togas next to cowboys next to gangsters you've got all that plus uh you know an animated wolf and an animated sheep just hanging out and having a meal between between shoots right like it's all it's all there i think but i think also like you said it's it's he loves all of it and he he loves the characters too you know even the like original characters that are created for the original cartoon characters that are created for this feel so well realized that you could you could convince a kid that like Benny, Benny the cab or Roger or Jessica like belong to some, you know, they, they had their own movie or yeah. their own TV yeah. show. Apparently and there the plans short... for a TV show like after yeah. this, that just never yeah. like oh. managed to come together for like, or just like a Roger Rabbit animated show. Mm-hmm. The, the short leading into it is damn good too. Huh. Yeah. It, it looks, inc- looks amazing. It's a classic Tom and Jerry kind of. Yeah material and we haven't talked about jessica rabbit we have not talked about jessica she gets a a grand rita hayworth style sultry entrance um and and of course uh you know burns herself into your memory there but as much as we've been talking about how how um hoskins just hits that detective archetype uh perfectly um she is is (laughs) the classic femme fatale just as much yeah kathleen turner is doing some doing some real work here right and i and it's so funny because like all she sells that she's in love with roger too like i believe that she like thinks he's as great you know um that because i think it would be so easy to play it up uh well you know she is out of roger's league and and but but they do that reverse. They do that joke multiple times, right? Where Roger's kind of like the the catch, I guess, and like everyone's so lucky. funny. Like that is yeah, cartoon. Yeah. That is the ultimate attractiveness qualifier. Is how exactly. funny are you? Exactly. Um, but she she does such a good job at at uh, yeah selling the 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 sultriness. But then there's you know there is a lot of layers to her, and I just believe. You know that she she cares so much for this this rabbit. All right, the animated cartoon of Roger Rabbit and the live action cartoon of Steve Martin. And, <laughs> and how they, Let's mm, bring them together. Why not? Yeah, I mean the, the there's such different approaches, um, but the the readily apparent observation is Steve Martin is is just playing a string of bits, and Bob Hoskins is playing it completely straight, and uh, at, so. As as far as stacking them up together, um, mm-hmm. they're they're just completely different approaches. The experiment I I would do too is I could see Bob Hoskins doing Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. I can't see Steve Martin doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Right, you have to be so you have to be able to be so grounded for so much of that movie and just be yeah. the straight man to all the other jokes. And like that's just not Steve Martin's like style. Right. Um, no. And and when you when you hear about like all the all the other actors that were considered for Who Framed Roger Rabbit before they landed on Bob Hoskins, it was a lot of like comedic people like Steve Martin and whatnot. I think like 
Bill Murray or like some other, you know, Eddie uh, Murphy, I think. Yeah, um, yes. Some other sort of undercut like the joke. Like if if right? if right, it was uh, funny, then yeah. Hoskins, Hoskins getting to to go go wild and get the weasels to laugh themselves to death only works if he's totally straight the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and that would not Bill Murray, Steve Martin. That would that would just not play the same way. And I think that the same sort of applies to the movies themselves, right? I mean, like the the, the actors. And, and, I mean, especially with Steve Martin having also like developed the movie. Um, Obviously, that's going to reflect him him throughout starring and, and writing it. But um, yeah, both movies are like the Dem and Don't Wear Plaid is about the bits and just sort of being like, what is the gag in the moment that we can get the most jokes out of? And that that Roger is like, here's a noir plot, and then we're just going to have some fun with it along the way. But like the stories and the characters matter, and that right. they just don't in Dem and Don't Wear Plaid. Right. The, the characters in who framed Roger Rabbit, half of them are cartoons and cartoons are just funny, right? They're not like trying to be, they're not like trying to make like jokes at the expense of the plot or the other characters. It's like just cartoon characters just want to be funny, right? That's like such a good uh, uh, setup in this, you know, that's Roger's whole philosophy is that he just wants to make people laugh, but he's also like, he also feels like fear and sadness and just, you know, just all these other things. But yeah, he gets to really, um, but with that setup, that humor just kind of comes from that really naturally. Whereas, whereas, yeah, with something like Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, they really have to like really hit those marks and hit those jokes, and it's it, very pointed. It's so it's so wild. I I can think of very few movies that come upon their humor as organically as Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's just because it's baked into the premise, and and it and you don't have to you don't have to force a joke in because the pace needs it. Like you said, cartoon characters are inherently funny. It's already there. And, and because you need though, it helps the, it helps the plot so much because you need to live in those, those moments in those set pieces a little bit longer for the antics to take place for the, for the cartoon gags to play out. It forces the story to move at a bit slower of a pace than some of these rapid fire noirs that we've been watching, which means it's a it's a very compact, very digestible story. There's not there there's turns, there's twists, but it's not a mile a minute. There you don't have needless characters that get forgotten about. Everything here matters. Mm-hmm. I I think my favorite one of my favorite parts of Who Framed Roger Rabbit because I think it's just so smart in how it's written. Right is when Roger is at the bar and Judge Doom is trying to dip him, right? And then Hoskins comes in and is like, let's give him his like last drink, right? And Roger doesn't want it. And so it goes into the classic cartoon bit, right? That we've seen a million times in cartoons of you do, you don't, you do, you don't. And then versus you don't, you do. But it's not just doing the bit for the sake of like a cartoon joke. It is like being woven into the plot to like, ha- so- right. There's stakes to Roger's it. Roger's life. Yeah. Um, in, in this moment, I just think it's like, that's the blend. That's the perfect blend, right? You're taking cartoon bits and like stakes and, um, um, and like blending those together in a way that I think just like so seamlessly works. And I love that the movie finds multiple points of that, of like taking the classic stuff we know about cartoons and re restructuring it. Compare mm-hmm. Roger's, um, Roger's reaction to alcohol to, Martin's uh, cleaning lady uh, reaction, and you have 
you have two very similar things that are that are being used to very different ends. Right. Well, I think also the thing about Dead Men, right, is that so much of it feels like clever but necessitated responses to the footage that they've got, right? Like that scene, and part of it is they chose the scene, so they thought it was funny that they had to figure out a way for Steve Martin to choke her. But they're like, okay, she says cleaning woman, so we're going to set up at the start that whenever he hears cleaning woman, he chokes somebody so that when we get to this scene, we can play that footage and he's choking it, right? Like it's all, but it's all in service of the gimmick. Whereas Roger is just like, we're just living in this world and there is a bit of a gimmick to it, but like we're we're just letting it kind of exist rather than like forcing it in it in in throughout. Um yeah, so you know, Roger Rabbit, utter classic, Demendo or Platt. If you're a Steve Martin fan, give it a watch. Check yeah, it out. Um, I, I, it, I enjoyed it. If you want to play certainly if you're well watched at Noir and you wanna you wanna play spot the 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 reference about the clip there's there's joys to be had in that absolutely sure. um uh but uh but of the two we all uh clearly uh roger's held up very very well and uh uh and you know i think i honestly it's it's that that kind of um cartoon that rare kind of movie that truly can work for any age um, on on that level, I mean, uh, or on on whatever level you know you're ap- appreciating it at that time, it's going to change throughout. But uh, God, what a what a lovely movie! There's something about there's something about 2D animation that's just going to be timeless, right? That's going to outlive all of the other um, you know, like uh, so many animated projects we see today that just aren't going to have that longevity that something like this will. Yeah, I mean, again, look at the the uh, Rescue Rangers movie. Like, even the hand-drawn characters in that are still computer-drawn. Uh, right. Just modern, yeah. modern techniques. And it, yeah, it, you can tell. We're going to move into what's in the box. Brandon, uh, this is a, a segment that we do here uh, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, what's something you've recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Anything you've been catching up on lately that you want to recommend to everyone? Um, you know, I just saw it the other evening, uh, but I would like to recommend Pearl. Have you all seen Pearl I yet? I haven't yet, but I Not should yet. soon. We, I both like recommended, we both recommended X uh, yes. on different, yeah. different episodes. Yeah. So. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, so I, I was a big fan of X, and while while I while I think Pearl is not quite at the level of where X is, I think it is such a, mainly for this like Mia Goth performance uh, is it's insane. There's just a monologue in Pearl that is going to like blow your minds um, that, that she gives uh, in that movie. But it's, it's a very interesting deconstruction of a character. And while I don't think it has as much to say as X, I think um, it's worth, it's very much worth your time uh, just for Mia Goth. So. Uh, I'm gonna nice. I'm gonna throw that out as a recommend. Excellent. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I feel like we've had a we've had a good thing going with horror lately. So uh, the fact that uh, both both Axe and, and Barbarian were were quality horror entries already this year. So I'm I'm looking yeah. forward to what else we've got. Prey too. Oh yeah, Prey of course. Loved Prey. Nope. It's been a good year for for horror. 
Yeah. Uh, Fred, what about you? It's been a while since we've recorded an episode, so there's been a lot of movies I've watched that I've that I've gotten to love. But the most recent one is Peter Strickland's latest, Flux Gourmet. I can't wait to see it. <sighs> you know, it it is actually kind of moves out of firmly moves him out of the horror genre that he's been working in, but really just like leans into his full freak flag, and I love it. Again, in one of his little pocket universes that kind of exists side by side with ours where uh not only is food-based musical performance a thing but it's popular enough that there are multiple bands that engage in it and they're all competing for a spot and a uh, institute where they get a month of uh artistic support and financial support to develop their sound and this one band winds up there and then uh things start going awry so it's both uh like a classic indie rock band story of personalities in a band trying to get along which which i love but also combined with strickland's heightened realities and camp sensibility and absolutely beautiful costumes production design sound design and and uh you know definitely not for everybody or even most people but it is it is for me and if if you're a strickland fan you'll enjoy a lot of it too i will go on record as as saying, and you you probably know this, that Duke of Burgundy is one of my very favorite movies of the last 10 years. So I'm pumped. I can't wait to see it. What about you, Tristan? What's, what's new for you? I have also watched a fair amount since we last were on. Um, I did... I did catch up on um, from when we uh, when we did talked about Detective Bureau two three. Um, you you inspired me to go watch Youth of the Beast, which is a wonderful Suzuki. I I feel like it's kind of where he he clicks into place and it Definitely. sets up the um uh, it sets up what he'll maintain for Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill. Uh, mm-hmm. I just uh, a really great movie. Um, so cool, so stylish. Um, I also caught a a samurai classic that I had been missing out on somehow, uh, Harakiri, uh, which is great. Uh, like like maybe the very best depressing. film about hypocrisy I've ever seen. It is it is very depressing, but uh, and it, it's a slow burner. But when it erupts in that uh, that the the second half of that movie, as everything just starts to unfold and the backstory unspools, and you get that beautiful fight on the windswept hills and and you get that haunting man on 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 small army action at the at the end it's just a a great great movie cool well we've all gotten to watch some great great movies sounds like so um in conclusion thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest grittiest of genres and a massive thanks to Brandon Shockney for jumping on with us. Uh, I've really Thank enjoyed you. your insight. Glad Thank to have you. you. Again. Thank you again for having me. It's been it's been great. Uh, we would love to have you back, uh, Brandon. Um, where where can people find you, or uh, or what projects you would like to promote? Um, well, you can find me on Twitter at b double e shock. Uh, and in terms of uh, projects, I mean, you know, I, I had one podcast I did. I wrapped up with my buddy Jonathan a while ago, but People are still finding it and listening to it. Uh, it's called How Rude, the Full House podcast, um, where me and my co-hosts watch 
every episode of that TV show with um, a guest. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe you might hear Fred Pelzer on one of those episodes. It was a great project. And yeah, please, please check it out. Oh, awesome. Thanks for sharing. And of course, uh, you can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next time when we follow our detective into the decade with perhaps the most notable evolution of noir since its heyday, the 1990s. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>